0: Let's um, just commit this time of study to to the Lord. Father, we just ask now for your Holy Spirit to come and to teach us, to open up the understanding of our hearts and minds. Lord, that we would see you through these verses we look at this morning. Lord, that we would see you in the book of Psalms. Father, we just thank you for this record that we have of these songs of devotion. Lord, of concern crying out to you for help and songs of rejoicing thanking you Lord for your faithfulness and your blessings Lord thank you that you give us a record that reminds us that we're not alone that the sufferings and the difficulties and the temptations we experience have been felt throughout the history of this world by those that love you but that Father you have a plan and a path and Father you have blessings overflowing for those who seek you with their whole hearts. So Lord, just use this time now to instruct us, we pray, in the name of Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, the book of Psalms, as we said last week, we're in a section now of the the poetical books. So Job really starts that off, we looked at it last time. So now on to the book of Psalms, and then next week Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs following that as well. <clears throat> the book of Psalms itself... It really is Israel's songbook, uh, in a sense. And what we've got here is poetry laced with strong theology. What do we mean by that? Well, quite simply, that these are poems, effectively, that have been written down for us uh, to, to music. Many of them we know for, for sure. Um, but what we know of God... So much of it comes from the book of Psalms. God's character, God's attributes. um, The the book of Psalms really does reveal our God to us in ways that the rest of the scripture uh, amplifies and illuminates. But so much, we find the source of these ideas and these thoughts come from the book of Psalms. The very fact, that, as we looked last time in the book of Job, that we read in Psalm 119, verse 68, that God is good and does good. Again, that's the book of Psalms that tells us that. So so much of our understanding, our concept of God, comes from this book. <clears throat> the Hebrew title simply means praises. Uh, 55 Psalms are actually addressed specifically to the chief musician. <clears throat> the Greek uh, word we have, psalmoid, which is where we get our title, Psalms, from. simply means a poem to be sung to a stringed instrument. Uh, or a psalter which is for a harp or string instrument. So the idea is that these are to be sung, accompanied with music. God of course is the author of everything that's good and music is good um, and music is something that can be used and should be used for glorifying the Lord. Just to mention a little bit, because poetry, we tend to think of poetry in terms of its phonetic design. So, in other words, we have this kind of rhyme that runs along, so uh, rhyming of sounds uh, with our poetry, uh, and also a rhythm, you yeah. So, that's the typical type of poem idea that we have something that rhymes either uh, in terms of the sounds of the words or the timing or so on. Well, Hebrew poetry is very different. It works in a conceptual design basis, so we're dealing with the parallelism of ideas, not sound or rhythm. So when you read, and of course we read a translation, but even if you were to read in the original Hebrew, you wouldn't necessarily find them rhyming like we would expect uh, very often our poems to rhyme. And we find that there's various ways that this is broken down. We find that there's these kind of comparative uh, ideas to illuminate. So um, different ideas will be compared. Uh, we'll see some of these examples in a moment. There's a, a contrastive uh, a type of right or um, uh, parallelism that we find. Um, <clears throat> we'll explain some of these as we go through just a moment. And completive as well. So where you have one verse and then the following verse will add a little bit more, greater clarity or so on and then we find as well this verse or this word Selah which seems to be a pause to connect ideas many commentators over the years have suggested that this is some musical term um, which it may have had some musical connotation but it seems more more like that it's connecting subject matter um, so not necessarily music it seems to be this idea of bringing to the end one section and then starting the next joining them together very much a Pause and think. Think about what you've just said, sung, or read, whatever. Um, and so that word, when we find it in the text, Selah, uh, its really suggestion is that this is a, a, a reminder just to stop and just take take stock of what you've just gone through and listened to. And we see it occur in different types uh, here, <clears throat> as I say. It's really concerned with truth, not tunes. It's not necessarily a musical thing. Now, just to break down again these ideas that I mentioned a moment ago. With this synonymous parallelism, um, we've got the second line, which is restating the first. So uh, I'll give you an example of that. It's Psalm 15, verse 1. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle? And then the second part. Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? To all intents and purposes, it's saying the same thing. It's restating it. Um, this is uh, synonymous that's there. The next one is this antithetic parallelism. So you've got contrasting ideas. I'll give you an example of that. Psalm 37 verse 9. For evildoers shall be cut off. But then the, the second part, but those that wait upon the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. So typically when we look at Psalms, we find these different types of poetry that are used. So again, this, this idea of contrasting to really make the point. And finally, we have what's I mentioned a moment ago, the synthetic uh, parallelism. And again, each successive line expands the meaning. One of the songs we sang this morning uh, from Psalm 19 really uh, gives you this. It says, the statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, in liking the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. So every successive line starts to build very much to to a crescendo. So this is, in terms of Hebrew poetry, very much what we find. So um, that might be helpful as you go through and you're reading Psalms yourself and you'll see these type of ideas. Um, Either the second line is building on the first or restating it in a different way. Uh, There may be a, a contrast that we find there uh, or another one, another type where it's just simply adding to and building the same thing so ok we know that from the, the text itself the 73 of the psalms we have were written by David um, 12 uh, are ascribed to uh, Asaph uh, he's the head uh, of David's uh, worship band if you like Uh, Twelve are to the sons of Korah, or for the sons of Korah. Two of them were written by Solomon. Uh, We have another couple of uh, Psalms, uh, Heman, the Ezraite, and Ethan, uh, the Ezraites. Again, Moses also attributed one Psalm. And then there's 48 Psalms that don't have a specific uh, author ascribed to them. Most of those, it's generally assumed, were David's Psalms as well. Um, But just so you get an idea of the breakdown. Of course, 150 Psalms in all making up the Book of Psalms. David's psalms are quite interesting, if we look at this, we see psalms that relate to his early life Now they're very interesting because you get a bit of a flavour of what it was like for David as a young shepherd boy on the hills surrounding Bethlehem, looking after the sheep, no doubt looking up into the stars at night and just contemplating his God and so we see a great um, insight into some of the, the things that David would have been going through and experiencing at that time we have 19 psalms that really uh, deal with the early part of david's reign so again you can see those these will all be in the notes for you to go back and look at for your reference if you want to we've then got 10 psalms from the time of the great sin this is when he committed this uh, adultery with Bathsheba. Uh, and so on, and all the things that resulted from that as well. Most notably, of course, Psalm 51, which is effectively David's confession uh, after this event, where he just pours his heart out to God and just pleads and begs forgiveness from God. We've then got Psalms of the exile, again, um, David's, uh, there's about ten of those um, that David looks, and there's seemingly, not only David's exile from Jerusalem at the time Absalom comes and so on, but they seem to have this prophetic um, tinge to them as well, looking uh, forward to Israel's own exile as a nation. And then we have three Psalms relating um, to the last period of his reign, to the latter days. So we get a very good picture of David's life as well as we look at the book of Psalms. It's also been mentioned that we've got effectively a Pentateuch of Psalms. Did you know that there's five books that actually make up the book of Psalms? Although we treat it as one book, we've actually got five books uh, in the Hebrew. We have book one, which takes us from Psalm chapter one, or Psalm one to Psalm 41. Book two, from 42 to 72 book 3 from 73 to 89 book 4 from 90 to 106 and then book 5 107 to 150 just interesting because if we use that division and then count the books of the bible we come to 70 rather than the 66 we're familiar with Um, and it's interesting because God seems to always deal in sevens and so on so I'll just leave that with you uh, for what it's worth But what also has been observed um, is that this Pentateuch of Psalms, well, these five groupings, these five books of Psalms, also seem to model, to some degree, the Pentateuch itself. So the Pentateuch being the first five books of the Bible, the books of Moses. Genesis, of course, deals with man and so on. And these first 41 Psalms, again, seem to have this specific reference to man in different ways. We've then got the Exodus book, if you like, so from Psalm 42 to 72. And there seems to be an underlying theme there of this deliverance. Well, Leviticus, um, of course, the book of Leviticus is very much concerned with the sanctuary and worship and so on. Uh, And that again seems to be the underlying theme from Psalm 73 to 89. The book of Numbers deals with the wilderness wanderings of the children of Israel. And from Psalm 90 to 106, again, we have this idea of this unrest and this wandering as an underlying theme. And then finally, Deuteronomy, which is a restating of God's word. In the book of Psalms from 107 to 150, again, there's a strong focus on the word of God. So, again, we don't want to make too much of these things, but there does definitely seem to be this pattern underlying the, the text here. Just to mention, there's a number of uh, inscriptions that you find in the Psalms. Um, some Bibles don't actually have those in them. Um, other Bibles you'll find these inscriptions are included, which will tell you who the author was or what the occasion was. So sometimes, uh, this, obviously you can see there's 34 without inscriptions, 52 have just got very simple inscriptions, maybe to the chief musician, for example. Um, 14 have historical inscriptions relating to a particular time. Um... The four of them have inscriptions denoting the purpose, why the psalm was written, what it was to be used for. We have this group called the Songs of Degrees. We'll mention that in a little while. Fifteen of those. Uh, and then there's also special inscriptions, certain things, uh, particular commands that were, were given. So we find those at the beginning of the psalms, typically. Now, if we were to break it down, again, we've got various kind of groupings that we can put the psalms under. We've got the Shepherd Psalms. We're very familiar with those, from Psalm 22... To Psalm 24, um, we'll talk a bit more about that in a while. The Kingdom Psalms as well, we're another group looking at the coming Kingdom. The Alleluia Psalms as they're often referred to. Two groupings in a sense, that, uh, you see there from 111 to 113 and then from 146 to round out the book to 150. And then the Songs of Ascent, again these are the, um, the these Psalms which we'll talk about in a while. And um, these songs of degrees, uh, often referred to uh, as well, 15 of those, and then the royal psalms we have as well, and then something called the Pauline psalms. I'll we'll explain what that means uh, in a short while. But just to give you an idea, we've got different kind of categories that we can group the psalms together under, and they seem to be fairly consistent. These ideas throughout other things that we'll find we've got in terms of the themes of the psalms we've got these uh, penitential psalms these are psalms of repentance where the the psalmist and again very often david is pouring his heart out to god pleading for forgiveness uh, for his own iniquity for his sin and so on so we have a number of those there's uh, the imprecatory psalms. So uh, again, these are ones um, that are um, these are kind of pleading um, to God. Um, there's the acrostic uh, psalms as well. We mentioned that these are ones where they have a, a particular pattern uh, in the way that they've been structured. Psalm 119 is a good example of that one. Psalm 119. Um, we have. Uh, 22 sections uh, in, the, in Psalm 119 itself and every section begins with a particular letter of the Hebrew alphabet so the first section begins with an aleph and every verse in that first section first eight verses will start with an aleph the second section begins with a bet, so like a letter B for us. Uh, and every uh, verse in that section begins with a B. Now, many believe that the reason that was done was to aid memory, so you can remember the Psalms. Um, it's interesting, in um, Spurgeon's commentary on the Psalms, he goes through and lists there a number of uh, people that he knew that had memorized the entire book of Psalms. And uh, other people that have memorized, again, the entire New Testament and some of these things. Uh, sadly today we, we can often remember what's happening uh, in the latest soap opera or the, the football scene or whatever else but sometimes we can't recall to memory uh, God's words so quickly and uh, there's a challenge for all of us about what we devote our time to <clears throat> well just to talk about some of these groups here the penitential uh, psalms again this is very much suffering under God's discipline God is a God who doesn't want to leave us in the condition we're in he wants to change us and mould us and make us like his son God is a God who, because he loves us, will chasten us and these psalms very much give us this type of thing so um, our choices are very much a big part of this and really we can can despise God's discipline, God's uh, correction we can try and resist it, we can collapse under it or what we should do is accept it and submit and of course with David so often we find that this is exactly what we see in some of these psalms that he wrote himself that he's submitting to God he's recognising that God is sovereign and that we have fallen way short of his standard of course we should always pray that the lessons are not wasted interestingly as well that we don't deserve the blessings that God pours upon us we don't even deserve the fact that God would chasten us that's an act of grace and an act of love These penitential psalms, again, we find uh, against wrath, against pride, against gluttony, against impurity, you see these psalm numbers there, against covetousness, against envy, and against carelessness. So uh, different types of things are dealt with here uh, through these psalms. Well, these imprecatory psalms, these are ones where really David is calling God's judgment down on his enemies. He's pleading to God that God would judge. And of course, the enemies were rebels against the Lord, not only against David or the other psalmists, but against God, against God's standard, against God's ways. And of course, the covenant people, Israel as a nation, were protected under conditions of obedience. And for us, of course, we recognize that this battle between good and evil has been going on since Genesis chapter 3. So we see a lot in our own life. It is interesting, you look at these, uh, as we refer to in imprecatory psalms, these psalms where people are pleading uh, for God to judge their enemies. And some of them can seem quite harsh. But of course you've got to realize that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. And actually when we read these Psalms, if you think about the battles you have in your own life with the the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, all of these things. And you can see why sometimes the language is such as it is, that it's very um, um, condemning against the enemies of God. And we have to realize that those enemies are very much the world, the flesh and the devil. And so when David and the other psalmists are crying out to God to crush their enemies, the world may look at that and say, well, that's not a particularly loving God, is it? When you realize that those enemies are very often the things that would keep you from God, they're the temptations, the sin which so easily ensnares us, you realize why the psalmists here have such a hatred for those things. It's not just, we're not just dealing with people here that David is wanting to see destroyed, we're dealing with principalities and powers so hopefully as we read these psalms and you read some of these quite strong terms sometimes you realise that on the spiritual level we're struggling with those things and we need the world, the flesh and the devil and so on in our life to be totally destroyed to be wiped out because we can't remain neutral in the battle either you'll find there's a number of terms I'm not going to go through these I'll leave them in the notes for you um, but we find specific words or phrases used um, you've got all sorts of things here uh, Neginoth there that's not something from In the Night Garden by the way uh, this is actually a stringed instrument and there's all sorts of uh, different other ones uh, that are used here so you'll find uh, in the, very much in the inscriptions um, a psalm of David on Neginoth so it means on a particular instrument and so on uh, how it's composed so we have different notes One of the things that we should do when we come to the book of Psalms is to ruminate, as it were. To meditate is the word typically we would use. You know, this whole idea of uh, of the cow chewing the card. It's interesting that when we have the classification of clean and unclean animals... Those that chew the card are classed as clean. Now, why did God do that? To illustrate something to us. That when we meditate, we regurgitate. That's, of course, what a cow does. It swallows its food, it then regurgitates it and chews it again, and swallows it. I think a sheep, if I'm right, has five stomachs, uh, and so on. And it goes through the food as it's digested, goes through various stages. Well, when we read Scripture, very often we'll just read straight through and carry on. Well, the idea here is that we meditate. That you read and reread and reread and go over again. And as you do, it becomes alive, and God, through His Holy Spirit, will speak to you and reveal all sorts of wonderful things, uh, bringing instruction and rebuke and and encouragement, all these things as we go over these verses. So, Psalms very much, it's not just a, a book for us to read through, it's a book to meditate in, just to spend time before God's throne. It's been said that meditation is to the soul what digestion is to the body. You know, if you don't allow your food to digest, then uh, you end up with stomach ache, don't you? And the same too, you know, with, with spiritual things, we need to allow it time to really permeate our understanding and thinking. Of course, we should have a joy in God's Word, and a number of scriptures we could reference of those that uh, Ezekiel, for example, kind of uh, figuratively actually eats God's Word. Uh, Jeremiah the same and in Revelation we have these same ideas we should have an absolute love for God's word it should be a joy for us to sit before it and let it instruct us well there's a number of levels of meaning as well there's, of course, the primary interpretation. So the context, as it was at the time, very often we're dealing with the personal experience of David. So as we read, we're looking at historical things that took place. Of course, much of the events that we find, or the, the, the Psalms that we find, the events of which are recorded in the book of First and Second Samuel. Um, so they become a good uh, guide, in a sense, along with the book of Psalms to help us understand the circumstances. But there's a direct application as well to all of the godly remnant in the nation of Israel during the Great Tribulation. So a lot of these Psalms, you'll see, have a real prophetic overtone, looking at things that are yet to come. God delivering Israel from their enemies. But then there's the general application. How it applies to you and I in our everyday lives. And of course... In many senses, for us, this is one of the most important things. To read these, and as I said a moment ago, with those impregnatory psalms, when you're looking at God, uh, or, or the psalmist crying out to God to judge and to destroy his enemies, well, don't we need to be daily praying that God will destroy the, the sin and the temptations in our lives? You know, so we see that although there's a real practical application, there may be some future prophetic hint to it as well. There's also a very personal application for all of these things. And of course, if we look at Psalms with that understanding, they do become more meaningful to us. They become very applicable to the right here, right now. Now, one of the things that we do find in the book of Psalms is Jesus. And Jesus himself makes this point in Luke twenty-four forty-four. Jesus specifically said that the Psalms speak of him now when we go through we find a number of psalms that do specifically reference Jesus Psalm 2 deals with the coming king Psalm 22 the crucified saviour Psalm 23 obviously the good shepherd Psalm 40 is really referencing the sacrifice that would be made for us Psalm 110 referencing the high priest so all of these pointing to Jesus and then Psalm 118 Referencing the stone that the builders rejected. So all of those ideas and thoughts and things, those psalms, specifically look forward to the Messiah. The book of Psalms is actually quoted in the New Testament more than any other book in the Old Testament. Which is quite interesting. You'll find more of the book of Psalms in the New Testament than any other of the Old Testament books. So there's so much concealed here for our learning and understanding. And, of course, that in itself constitutes irrefutable testimony to the divine inspiration of the word of God. The fact that we have this book, this hymn book of Israel, much of which was completed by, certainly, even, even if you take into account things like Hezekiah, who added some psalms in there as well, we're dealing 600 years or more before Jesus came. And yet these psalms speak as if they were eyewitness accounts of the events particularly psalm 22 and others so we see that god here has had his hand and his fingerprints all through this book again psalm 40 itself tells us in the volume of the book it is written of me speaking of jesus so again many many psalms speaking of the messiah and many messianic details as well we find about his person about jesus his character and so on that he's the son of god the son of man the son of david we also find the offices that he would hold, that he's a prophet, a priest, and a king. And all of these, again, come to us through the book of Psalms. <clears throat> if we just look at the kind of profile uh, and so on, that Jesus was to speak in parables. And of course we know that Jesus did. That he would calm the storm, and he did. It, it would be despised, and we know that he was despised. It would be rejected. And to be mocked. Again, all of those things foretold in the book of Psalms. We also find that he was to be whipped, to be derided, impaled on a cross. And of course, that Psalm 22, as I mentioned, incredible psalm, speaks of him also being thirsty. He was given wine mixed with gall and so on. Uh, and they were casting lots for his garments. And that not a, bro- a bone of him was to be broken, Psalm 34 gives us that. So we have so many details all pointing forward to the Messiah. The fact that he would rise from the dead, he would ascend to heaven, he would sit at the right hand of God, is the high priest, he would judge the nations, his reign will be eternal. It's incredible. We see all these details coming through. Truly, as Jesus said, the volume of the book does speak of him. The fact that he is the son of God. He's the son of David. And the people will sing Hosanna. Save now, O oh Lord. And that he would be blessed forever. And also will come in glory in the last days. So this isn't just a, a quaint book of old songs. This is an incredible record that God has laid down of his son. In so many details, so many ways. Well, we also see of the coming kingdom. We see Psalm 46 has this uh, idea of the kingdom coming through the tribulation, as it were. Psalm 47 carries on, and we have the range of the kingdom. The whole earth will come under the control of Jesus the Messiah when he sits on the throne of David. Psalm 48 carries on, and we find the center of his kingdom will be Zion. So there's just a couple of ideas, but as we go through, we find these little groupings of psalms that really amplify things that are yet to come. Now obviously because of time, we can't go through every psalm in detail. But there's a couple of things just probably worth highlighting. Um, The first section, as it were, deals with, as I said, um, very much the the humanity, the man aspect of it. It's just interesting looking. Um, We find, as I say, man is in view in the state of uh, blessedness and then fall and then recovery. So we have Psalm 1 which deals with very much the perfect man or the last Adam. Psalm 2, the rebellious man, the one that would just turn away from God and mock and scoff at God. Psalm 3 deals again with the perfect man who was rejected. Psalm 4, the conflict between the seed of the woman and the serpent. Psalm 5 deals with the perfect man in the midst of enemies. Psalm 6, the perfect man in the midst of chastisement. Again, the implication there of the, the heel of Jesus being bruised as his feet were pierced. As he's put on the cross. Psalm 7, the perfect man in the midst of false witnesses which we know surrounded him in his trials and so on. Psalm 8, the repair of man comes through man, through Jesus as the head of the serpent is bruised. Psalm 9 through 15. Uh, the enemy and antichrist's conflict is we see that there and in the final deliverance uh, and then psalms 16 through 41 we see christ in the midst of his people sanctifying them to god setting them apart so we have very subtle themes all the way through underneath there, but we see a real cohesion in the text as we go through now, I would love to spend the time and go through Psalm 1. We could spend a whole morning just looking at that one psalm. Um, it speaks of the way that we should walk. And also the slippery slope that's there if we don't walk according to uh, the path that God has for us. It talks of the counsel of the ungodly. Uh, and that's such a dangerous thing. You know, we're all victim to listening to the things of the world. And how that counsel of the ungodly can cause us to um, stand uh, in the way with sinners. And then we end up, ultimately, down spiral, sitting with those that scorn and scoff at God's word. Lots of examples that we could give looking at those kind of things. For the sake of time, we'll uh, we have to leave those things to cover them in detail. Maybe we'll have an opportunity on Thursday um, to do a bit more. Um, just going to pick up a few Psalms, though. Just look at some of the things. Psalm 7. we am told there... He made a pit and digged it and has fallen into the ditch which he made. His mischief shall return upon his own head and his violent demon shall come down upon his own pate. Now, just just the reason I highlight this is because some of the things, subtle things we find tucked in these verses because we're reading there of the ungodly, the wicked, those that reject God. And it's saying that that which he does, his mischief, shall return upon his own head. Now why it's interesting is because we see exactly that through scripture a number of times. Saul, if you remember, wanted to kill David, and yet he died by his own sword. Pharaoh ordered all the male babies drowned in the Nile. How did he die? Well, Pharaoh was drowned in the Red Sea. And then a couple of weeks ago, we were looking at the situation with Haman. He orders a gallows to be built to hang Mordecai. But Haman himself is hung on those gallows that he built. And we see a number of times in scripture, these examples and others, now, just as it says in Psalms, God is consistent uh, through His Word. In Psalm eight. Um, we just have a reference there to the paths of the seas. Now, this is very interesting because this led a man by the name of Matthew Fontaine Murray to start investigating um, these these verses and also the verse in Isaiah forty three as well. Well, this man was born in 1806 uh, in America and Virginia. Uh, he joined the Navy in 1825. Uh, in 1842, he was put in charge of the depots and charts uh, and instruments and so on for the Navy. Um, and as a result of these verses in Scripture, he started studying. And he published maps of the main wind fields in the earth and then finally charting these pathways in the sea. And today he's recognized internationally as the father of oceanography. The whole size of oceanography really owes its origin and everything else to Matthew Fontaine Murray, who got the idea from Scripture. It's because Scripture speaks of these pathways in the sea that he set out to investigate. and found, indeed, there are pathways in the sea. There's currents under the sea that we now know, of course, have huge implications on our weather patterns and all sorts of things. Again, just a little nugget tucked away in the book of Psalms. Psalm 10, uh, we've got the beliefs of the wicked. They say there is no God. I shall not be moved. God doesn't see me and God will not judge me. And yet then we find in the same psalm the counter to all of those things. But God does see what's going on. God does judge sin. God is king. He sees everything. And God defends his people. So we see a lot of these kind of things so applicable, in a sense, to our own lives. The psalms uh, that we mentioned earlier, the shepherd psalm, Psalm 22 to 24 well these in themselves are, are, are very beautiful psalms uh, but they speak so much of jesus psalm 22 the suffering savior the good shepherd who lays his well, who lays his life down for the sheep the living shepherd psalm 23 we're so familiar with that psalm of course who's the great shepherd according to hebrews 13 and then finally, the exalted sovereign, Psalm 24. And in 1 Peter 5, verse 4, we find Jesus is referred to as the chief shepherd, the one who is above all. It's this lovely design. Shepherds themselves, very interesting uh, to do a study of this through scripture. Abel, we find the first martyr, the first person that's effectively put to death for their trust, and their faith in God, Genesis chapter 4, verse 2, he was a shepherd, that was his occupation. Moses also spent 40 years caring for his father-in-law's sheep. David, as we' mentioned already, served his father as a shepherd, and of course, God is a shepherd. N- numerous references to that through scripture, and the Messiah is also a shepherd, which is very interesting and it's just, it 's just quite illuminating when we just think of sheep and what they 're like sheep, you and I effectively defenseless, prone to get lost, need almost constant care you see you can't drive them like cattle either they must be led which uh, we could lead on to a discussion about purpose driven so no actually we're we're led not driven goats are driven and we're known uh, and sheep are known by name john 10 uh, verses 1 to 5 make that clear that that we are as sheep and we're known by name sheep themselves are called by name and these ideas, again, just speaks very much. It's such a great analogy um, for us as human beings, as those that are seeking to follow God, but need constant care and attention. We need God to protect us, to watch over us. Of course, Jesus, as we said, is the great shepherd who cares and equips us. He's the great high priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. And he died for his sheep. And the Father gave them to him. And again, we're told that not one was lost except the son of perdition. Reference to to Judas, of course, there. Well, Psalm 25 through 39, we have a series of devotional psalms. These, again, just uh, the preceding psalms up to this point have been very dramatic and sensational. And the ones here, probably not quite so well known. They're more intimate and personal and so on. Um, But they still have an awful lot to speak to us very much applicable to the past present and future you see from david's perspective we've got the predicament and the motives and everything else the present of course is how those things impact and affect israel and ourselves right now and the personal is how it affects you so it's very very interesting very personal kind of grouping of psalms we have there the conclusion of course is that our god can be trusted regardless of whatever else we see going on you see when we pray You fix our eyes just as David did on the fact that God is good, that God is upright, God is willing to instruct sinners, God is loving, God is faithful, God is forgiving. And so the confidence that we have in prayer is not because we pray well, but because of the nature to the God to whom we pray. It's not about what we pray so much as to whom we pray. So again, all of these things, you see that our our understanding of God and his nature and his character are derived from this book. Well, The second section, the Exodus section, as it's sometimes referred to, um, again, the theme here, the underlying theme, seems to be deliverance. It's interesting, again, just looking at it, if you look at this word dispensationally, or in these kind of periods of time, we see from Psalm 42 to 44, seemingly the Great Tribulation is laid out for us there, the details that are given, that which is yet to come, of course. But Psalm 45 has this beautiful overtone, speaking of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then, from 46 to 48, speaking of his kingdom once Jesus comes back and establishes his throne and rule. In Psalm 69, very interesting psalm. It deals with the, the silent years of Jesus. You see, up until the start of Jesus' ministry, we really know very little about him. There's nothing that's told us in the New Testament. Interestingly enough, this psalm, next to Psalm 22, is the most quoted psalm in the new testament so psalm 69 the most quoted psalm other than psalm 22 again psalm 22 deals with the death of christ but psalm 69 seems to deal with the life of christ so it's quoted in the gospels of matthew mark luke john also in acts and in romans and There are also other references to it uh, that are derived from the actual quotations It's interesting because it tells us about the silent years of Christ's childhood and young manhood, which, as I said, the Gospels don't tell us anything really about those things. Luke tells us about this instant when Jesus is 12 years old and he goes up to the temple. But other than that, the next jump really is to when he's about 30 years old. So this psalm does fill in some of the gaps of those early years. And it's very interesting because we see, in a sense, the the struggle that Jesus had in those, if you may say, dark days in Nazareth. Um, and also we see a reflection, of course, of the dark hours on the cross. It's classified by Bible commentators and scholars as one of the imprecatory psalms, again, calling judgment down on God's enemies, partly because of what we find in verse 22 to 28 of that psalm, uh, and it's actually from that section that very often the New Testament quote has come. But this prayer that, that is made here is actually a cry for justice, So it's a psalm very much of Jesus' early humiliation and rejection. So the psalm really begins way up north in Nazareth, and we hear the heart sobbing in the sense of a small boy, a teenager, or a young man in this environment. And it's really quite challenging to us as we stop to consider it, because we've got no idea what Jesus endured for those 30 or so years. You know, we tend not to think about that, and yet Jesus... The only reason he'd come was to fulfill the will of the Father to go to the cross to die for you and I. See, he was raised in this town, and when were are told from this psalm, he was called illegitimate. People laughed at him, they mocked him, because there was this question mark about his parentage. Obviously, they knew Mary was his mother, but there was a big question mark about Joseph being his real legal father, or, or natural father. Of course, that wasn't the case, we know that wasn't the case, and there was this, this joke about the whole thing from what this psalm tells us. But again, he was called illegitimate in order that you and I have a clear title to become legitimate sons of God. 1 John chapter 3 tells us, Behold, what manner of love the Father has poured upon us that we should be called the sons of God. See, we've been brought in and made a son. Jesus gave up everything and was effectively mocked and laughed at for being an illegitimate son. The Son of God God bought that for me on the cross. He paid the penalty for my sins. It's a very interesting psalm, worthy of of studying and going through. Well, the, the third book groupings takes us from Psalm 73 through to 89. This, in a sense, is the Leviticus section um, and like I said it's very much corresponding to the book of Leviticus because it's in here in fact the very first time of this group uh, deals very much with the sanctuary and so on uh, Leviticus is the book of worship for the tabernacle or later for the temple of course we mentioned at the time it's one of the greatest books in the Bible many commentators list Leviticus as one of their favourite books it's a very hard book to read but it's an amazing book to study Leviticus emphasises two things one the holiness of God and the second, sacrifice. That without the shedding of blood, there's no remission. And we see an echo of that through these Psalms. Well, one of the Psalms in this grouping, Psalm 74, uh, is very interesting because we have recorded by Asaf, the the songwriter here, the psalm writer, um, prophecy that spans the ages in many senses because it's prophetic, dealing with the invasion that would happen later on under the hand of this individual Antiochus Epiphanes after the Greek Empire had divided after Alexander the Great the Empire divided into four component parts and the descendants of one of those generals of Alexander's is this man by the name of Antiochus he was a Syrian and as a result of his uh, hatred for God's people and many other things in 167 BC okay so we're dealing probably 800, 900 years after this psalm written he plunders Jerusalem He profanes the temple, places an image of Jupiter in the holy place. It's what Daniel references as the abomination of desolation. And the other thing that we find is then the parallel of this, because it's exactly the same, in a sense that whole situation with Antiochus was a dress rehearsal of what will happen with Antichrist. Antichrist will do the same thing, he will place his own image in the temple. So, Incredible psalm from a prophetic point of view, as I said seventy we see the destruction by titus that 's alluded to in this as well, and then ultimately, as I mentioned, the great tribulation when Antichrist will put this abomination of desolation that Jesus, although he speaks of daniel 's record of what had happened, he refers to it as also something that will happen as well <clears throat> Wow psalm 77 we have six questions in a sense posed by ourselves and the question there is the first one is has he rejected us you know maybe a question that sometimes we ask you know things sometimes don't go as we intend or plan and we struggle with things and sometimes we feel maybe god's abandoned me maybe i've done something wrong maybe you know well lamentations gives us an answer is that no god is always faithful his mercies are new every morning The next question is, will he ever again show favor to Israel? Well, the resounding answer from scripture is yes, he will. And throughout scripture we find numerous references to the fact that God has not abandoned his covenant people. Romans 9, 10 and 11, amazing chapters that make it absolutely clear to anybody with the ability to read that God has not finished with Israel, but they have been blinded until the fullness of the Gentiles be brought in question again third question has his unfailing love vanished forever again you think of the problems the predicaments that some of these individuals found themselves in and what led them to ask these questions but it's not hugely dissimilar to the problems that we find of course jeremiah answers that question god has a love that goes forever his mercy endures forever we find that phrase repeating throughout uh, the book of psalms his mercy endures forever have his promises failed? Well, no, because if God makes a promise, they can't fail because God's promises are true and sure. We can trust them. Has he forgotten to be gracious? Again, no. Isaiah 49 makes that clear to us. Verses 14 to 18. God will never forget to be gracious to us. So the final question, is he so angry? Has he shut up his compassions? Well, once again, no. Because, yes, sometimes weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning as we were singing again from this wonderful book of psalms this morning that god will chasten us but he won't cast us off if god corrects us it's because he wants to transform us and make us like his son just as Job, we were looking last time speaks of that crucible in a sense uh, uh, that is used for refining or when he's come forth he'll come forth as pure gold refined you know, with the whole refining process, you heat the, the, the metal up so much, all the dross comes to the surface and it's skimmed off. And it's been said many times that, you know, how does the, um, uh, the person exercising his skill, his art, his trade know when this gold is pure? Well, it's when he can see his own reflection in it. And when does God know that he's finished his work with us? Well, when he can look and see the reflection of himself, of his son in our lives. You know, at the moment, if God were to look at you, how much of you would he see and how much of his son would he see? And again, that challenge to have less of us, more of him. We must decrease. He must increase. Psalm 84, we sang this again this morning. The song of the sons of Korah. Again, the situation back in the wilderness. Korah's descendants, Korah himself had led this rebellion against Moses. As a result, God judges him. The ground opened up and he swallowed. And in this psalm, this beautiful declaration, we'd rather be doorkeepers in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. No doubt, thinking back to what the ancestors had done saying, you know, just to be a doorkeeper in God's house is a privilege and a blessing beyond anything we deserve. And of course, it's exactly what the sons of Korah ended up doing. They became porters, doorkeepers, effectively, in the house of God. A wonderful challenging psalm well then book four this is the numbers uh, psalm in a sense or numbers grouping Um, again unrest and wanderings and so on the theme again underlying here seems to be peril and protection and the book of numbers records the great tragedy of a generation dying in the wilderness because of their lack of faith never reaching their goal to get to the promised land you know for us again that question that god asks us every day do you trust me how appropriate it is this section then begins with Psalm 90 which is the prayer of Moses it's the only psalm that Moses has written that we have on record <clears throat> we have psalms that speak of God the three theocratic psalms uh, the penitential psalms in this section you can see listed there the specific psalms of thanksgiving national psalms and so on and historic psalms so those are kind of the groupings that we have within this section <clears throat> it's interesting Psalm 94 we read O Lord God, to whom vengeance belongs, Psalm 95. O come, let us sing unto the Lord, let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation, Psalm 96. O sing unto the Lord a new song, Sing unto the Lord all the earth. Psalm 97. The Lord reigns, let the earth rejoice. Psalm 98. O sing unto the Lord a new song, for He has done marvelous things. And in Psalm 99, the Lord reigns, let the people tremble. It's interesting, again, this whole idea of very much seemingly looking forward to that time of the tribulation, then as Jesus comes back, establishes his throne, and then reigns over the whole earth. So the final section, book 5, the Deuteronomy section in a sense, the word of the Lord. Of course it's within this section that we have Psalm 119, that incredible psalm. It's the longest chapter in the Bible, the longest psalm in the book of Psalms. And the whole focus is on the word of God. Such a wonderful psalm, and so much insight and instruction comes through that psalm. In this uh, particular thing, we find that the attributes of God are revealed to us that God is gracious, He's true, and He is the truth. He's righteous, He's good. Again, that, that verse, to make a mental note of it, Psalm 119, verse 68 God is good and does good. That's God's character. That God is trustworthy, He's eternal. That God is light and in him there is no darkness. There's a lot of practical lessons as well in Psalm 119. That God will keep us clean. His word will keep us clean. He will give us joy. He guides us. He establishes our values. Also very important. and He helps us to pray effectively. You know, the best way to learn to pray is to read through the book of Psalms and see how these people cried out to God. Oswald Chambers in his classification of these books says that Psalms is part of God's how-to series. Job was how to suffer, Psalms how to pray. And Psalms really does help us to communicate with God. We see the prayers of these godly saints that God has recorded in his word that become great examples of how we should pray. Also, that God gives us hope through his word as well. So these things again come, come out. He gives us peace. He gives us freedom. He brings us best friends. And to uh, find and fulfill purposes. You know, Sometimes in life we kind of, what is it that God wants me to do? Well again, Psalms is a great book for helping to give us some indication. Psalm 119 specifically, verse 73 there. That God will help you to find what your purpose in life is and also then to fulfill that ultimately it's serving god but in which way well go to the lord sit down meditate on his word and he will speak to you also the god will strengthen our witness you know as we stand up for him well god will always come through god looks to strongly support those whose hearts are completely his we looked at that from second chronicles chapter 16 also resuscitates us. i mean we were about ready to faint and die without god in our lives without god stepping in we wouldn't have anything. So there's a lot of practical things we see. Well, then we move on to the Psalm of De- the Songs of Degrees. Now, there's a lot of conjecture as to what these actually mean. Um, Spurgeon's uh, comments on this are fabulous as he talks through the ideas. Um, but just uh, quite simply, the, these seem to be songs that were sung by the captives returning from Babylon. Um, Ezra seven nine makes allusion to that. Um, And of course we know that every year there was these compulsory feasts uh, Three times a year The Feast of Unleavened Bread The Feast of Weeks And the Feast of Tabernacles Which actually includes all their feasts Because Unleavened Bread also includes the Feast of Passover And first fruits, And then the Feast of Tabernacles Also uh, intertwined with that with the other fall feasts Or autumn feasts So three times a year they were to go up to Jerusalem and celebrate And it seems that as they were going up year on year These songs were the ones they were given to sing as they kind of got closer and closer and closer to Jerusalem. Uh, Very much it was kind of a, a rallying point. They would meet together on their journey towards Jerusalem and as they got closer to Jerusalem, they would sing these songs of degrees as they get closer. And it's an incredible group of psalms. It's really worth just sitting down and just reading through them and you see this kind of intensity build as they get closer and closer to their destination. Um, Another view suggests that these were um, used uh, on the steps leading up to the altar. Um, so the different steps um, Hezekiah uh, is, uh, suggested that this is what he did he used these of course he was one of Judah's most godly kings we know that um, and he wrote many psalms and proverbs we only have some of them specifically ascribed to him in the book of psalms but also in 2nd Chronicles 29 we find that he did restore temple worship and he had 15 years added to his life so some think that uh, he is the, the one that's uh, effectively uh, Behind these psalms and the the idea of them being these different steps up towards the altar and so on. Either way, they're fabulous psalms that just speak of that going up to the house of the Lord, getting closer to this place that God has for us. So there are lots of applications in our own lives. Okay, so just the last thing to mention. I mentioned these Pauline psalms. Well, actually this comes from Martin Luther. Um, and he highlights Psalm 32, Psalm 51, 130 and 143 as psalms that teach us that the forgiveness of sins is vouchsafed to all who believe without having any works of the law to offer. In other words, it's the gospel of grace. And he highlights that in all of these psalms, it's you know, the idea of blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven, to whom the Lord doesn't impute iniquity that we've had our sins wiped clean not because of anything we did not anything to do with the law but because of his grace and so that's why these particular psalms have this um, suggestion in a sense um, that they're actually um, not, it's not to suggest that Paul wrote them or anything else but they echo so much of what Paul made the the, the mainstay of his own message that we're saved by grace so it's a wonderful thing So, and then finally the Alleluia Psalms, Psalm, Psalm one hundred six, one hundred eleven through one hundred thirteen, Psalm one hundred thirty-five, and then from one hundred forty-six to round out the book at one hundred fifty. These great songs of praise and just acknowledging God's greatness and goodness and blessed be the name of the Lord. Effectively, you know, let everything that has breath praise the Lord. And of course, if we have breath, we should uh, praise Him. So, Psalm one hundred forty-six is if you like it's the vow of a lifetime to praise Psalm 147 it's good and pleasant to praise Psalm 148 we should join all creation in our praise Psalm 149 we should worship joyfully and Psalm 150 we're told where and when and how which is again everything that has breath should praise the Lord let's bow our hearts well Heavenly Father we thank you For your goodness and grace. We thank you for that which this book of Psalms reveals to us about your character. We thank you, Lord, that you said that in the volume of the book it is written of your Son. And as we turn to this book, we see so much of Jesus. And we're told so many wonderful things that should encourage and edify us, Lord. As we see your saints, the likes of David and Asaph and these others, Lord, struggling. And yet, Lord, you always come through. You always answer them. Father, just thank you for these lessons and help us to to use this practical resource that you have given us as we go through similar struggles and trials in our life. Lord, as we go through days when all we want to do is praise you and then another day when all we want to do is to curl up in a ball and cry. Lord, you're a God that understands. Lord, you hear and you record, as your word tells us, the book of Psalms tells us, you record all of our tears. I so say, Lord, thank you that you're a God who understands. Lord, again, help us to use this resource to grow in knowledge and grace. Lord, God, we thank you for this time that we've been able to spend together this morning. May all the glory go to you. In Jesus' name, amen.